The next set of cases was presented to Drs. Kim and Sandler, beginning with a patient of Dr. Bill Harwin. This is a 49-year-old white male who presented in 2000, was a patient of mine at that time with a left neck mass. A fine needle aspiration showed squamous cell carcinoma. There was no obvious primary initially. He underwent a left radical neck dissection, direct laryngoscopy, and biopsy of the left pharynx. At surgery, he was felt to have induration probable tumor within the left tonsil, although pathology from that was negative. The neck lymph node dissection revealed 10 of 33 lymph nodes with a metastatic poorly differentiated squamous cell carcinoma with extension into perinodal adipose tissue. He underwent placement of a peg tube in Mediport, and at that time he was treated with cisplatinum 5-fluorouracil for four cycles with concomitant radiation therapy, 76 gray, and he's been disease-free as far as his head and neck cancer since that time. In April of this year, he developed hemoptysis, was found to have a right lower lobe mass. Bronchoscopy showed non-small cell carcinoma. On May 30, 2007, he underwent a mediastinoscopy with biopsy, right thoracotomy, and right pneumonectomy. The thoracic surgeon found lactatic collapse of the right lower lobe, a 6-centimeter mass involving the hilus and involving the middle and lower lobes, it was felt that the only possible resection was a pneumonectomy as the tumor closely approximated the right pulmonary artery and vein. And final pathology showed a 4-centimeter poorly differentiated adenosquamous cell carcinoma with negative margins. There were three positive lymph nodes, one peribronchial and two intrapulmonary lymph nodes. Let's talk a little bit about the man himself. What was his smoking history? He was a cigarette smoker. He's a working man, very tough man. He went right back to work as soon as he held up from his head and neck cancer. He wasn't the typical head and neck cancer who just smoked and drank, but he stopped smoking and any drinking at the time of his head and neck cancer. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the adjuvant decision in this case and also the research implications. But, Ed, maybe we can just start out a little bit with the fact that this man had head and neck cancer and the issue of potential chemo prevention that could have been implemented at that point in terms of maybe preventing the lung cancer. Where are we right now with that? Yeah, there's nothing standard of care right now, obviously, for chemo prevention. This is one of the big areas that we're trying to institute a few clinical trials. As you know, this gentleman was at exceptionally high risk for recurrence and hasn't yet in seven years, which is good, even though there were 10 of 33 lymph nodes, if I heard you correctly. So I think he did fairly well. As long as he's recovered his swallowing function and other things, I think that's a good story to that. They are looking at trials, trying to institute some of these targeted agents, such as the EGFR class or VEGF class, as adjuvant therapy for a year. We had done a previous trial at MD Anderson using 13-cis retinoic acid, alpha-tocopherol, and interferon alpha, which Dong Shin led, and had some very nice results. It was just very tough to take that therapy, that bioadjuvant therapy, afterwards and for a year. Could we have calculated his risk of getting lung cancer the time he had the head and neck cancer? At that point, his risk of lung cancer was still pretty high, and people have lifetime incidences of second primary tumors, is what you would classify this one, of anywhere between 6% or higher. But Clearly, anyone we see in our clinics who's had one of these aerodigestive tract smoking-related cancers is certainly at higher risk to get another one. Alan, any sort of practical advice you give a patient who you think's been cured of lung cancer in terms of trying to avoid another one? Well, if they're smoking, to stop smoking is probably right. obviously the key. And then that's really all I explain that... For so-called high-risk patients, we haven't established any screening mechanism, but generally these folks that we've cured, 
have undergone a curative intent, we follow pretty closely, often every three months and oftentimes with a CAT scan that some folks do every three months, some do every other visit, some do once a year. So we're doing very high surveillance on these folks. We'll see patients every three months for the first two years, spread it out to four months for a year or so, six months, and then at five years, it's annually. And what we've puzzled with is how often you get a CAT scan when you're following patients. Because again, we're looking for recurrence and we're also looking for surveillance. And as I often tell the patients, I'm more interested in a second than a recurrence because generally a recurrence, we're not going to be able to cure that. So I would just be interested. And I, the guidelines aren't very clear. They're very vague purposefully. Bill, can you talk a little bit more about the man himself? You said he's kind of a working type man, but he was very young when he got his first serious cancer. What was his sort of family constellation and his sort of attitude about this? He was married and had children. He was a working man. The 5-FU cisplatin treatment, which we really don't do anymore with the radiation, is extremely toxic. So it's an extremely difficult treatment. I'm happy just to give cisplatin alone these days. How did he do in it? He had a tough time with the mucositis, but he pretty much had all of his treatment, as I recall, as an outpatient. But, you know, he did well, and when he developed the lung cancer, he just said, you know, whatever you recommend, he was going to do. Did he appear stoic, upset? Pretty stoic. He's a tough guy. Sir? What kind of surveillance did you do in him? I haven't had a set system. I sometimes have done chest x-rays over the years, sometimes done CAT scans, and, you know, I'm always thinking about it. Yeah. I always remember 10% instance of second lung cancer okay. was the number that was quoted, so we're always aware of it. When exactly was he diagnosed with lung cancer? in uh, April of this year. Okay, so just a few months ago. So one of the options here, Alan, is going to be potentially participation in the new ECOG 1505 study. And I don't know, Bill, I know you put a lot of people on study, and I don't know if you activated I did them. not have an adjuvant study for this man. Do you know about the 1505 study? No. So Bill's in the Florida Cancer Specialist Group with, what, 40 oncologists? And so, Alan, maybe we can... Sell sure. him on 1505. Well, don't be embarrassed about not knowing about it because it only recently was activated. It's actually going to be an international study. And basically, it builds upon the previous adjuvant work that's been done as well as the bevacizumab. So it's for patients with 1B, 4 centimeters or greater, to 3A, patients who then receive randomized to four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, cisplatin-based. You have a choice of three. Cisplatin, docetaxel, gemcitabine, or navalbine. The patients are randomized to receive the four cycles of chemotherapy alone or with bevacizumab at the 15 milligram per kilogram dose given on day one, of course, every three weeks up to a year. So this is a familiar theme for this group because how many of you actually participated in NSABP CO8 looking at full FOX plus or minus bevacizumab? I'm kind of curious, Atif, how did you find patients responding to that trial at that point, which was, I guess it started just about three years ago right. and it closed last fall? Yeah, I mean, it accrued patients so fast. It was very easy yeah. to convince them to get on the study because they were hearing about the Herceptin studies. You get the best standard of care, which is full FOX, plus minus something new that has the potential to make them do better, at least in theory. I hear a lot of people shaking their heads. They put 2,600 people on in two years. Ed, one of the big controversies about this study relates to the fact that, as Alan just said, there's only cysts, there's no carbotaxol, and we know from our patterns of care work that we just did about a month ago that the most common adjuvant regimen in the United States is carbotaxol. It's about 50% of what people do. The rest is cysts, plus or minus one of the three. Can you talk about your perception of that whole issue, and then we'll hear it from Alan in terms of how this rolled out. Yeah, so 
I think, you know, obviously lung cancer is becoming a spectrum, carboplatin and cisplatin. We continue to hear the debates over the years, and I don't know if we still have a definitive answer per se, nor should we spend another thousand patients looking for a definitive answer. My tendency is in a curative patient, we go with where the data is, and cisplatin is the proven winner. Clearly, there are some patients who are not going to be amenable to cisplatin, and these are cured patients, so you have to always assess that risk-benefit to them. Age may be a factor, comorbidities. In a metastatic patient, clearly carboplatin is something that is used very frequently, and I do as well. And so I do, in any curative setting, try to use cis with one of the other doublets. Alan, can you talk a little bit about sort of the history of how this decision got made? Sure. You've heard that the definition of a camel is a horse designed by a committee. And that's how 1505 came about as well. So this is one where the original concept was it was going to be cisplatin venerelbin was the only one because that's the one that had the most data associated with it. It was going to be 1B patients through 3A patients. This study is called 1505. So in 2005 is when it was being started. And that was when the CLGB data was originally positive. And then as that became, quote, negative, depending on your perspective, then some adjustments were made. It was then the four centimeter mark at 1B, but the paclitaxel carbo wasn't included. We originally had the paclitaxel carbo. We got the NCI to agree to a choice of regimens that included paclitaxel carbo. Then the CLGB data came out negative and they didn't want the paclitaxel carbo in, yet they would allow the four centimeters or greater. And so it's sort of an evolution and a lot of controversy. And right now we're all taking bets on the over-under as to when the amendment will come out that allows the inclusion of paclitaxel carboplatin to enhance accrual. But for right now, it's three choices of the system. Of course, it's kind of ironic that it was carbopaclitaxel that the 4599 study Correct. I mean, that's the only, right. And now, as of ASCO, Ed, we have the AVAIL study, the second phase three randomized study looking at bevacizumab, this time with CIS and GEM. Can you just sort of capsulize what that showed at ASCO? So that was the second study that looked at cisplatin and gemcitabine in combination with standard dose bevacizumab, which was 15 milligram per kilogram, and then they also had a lower dose, 7.5. There were two placebo groups. There was a low-dose placebo and a high-dose placebo. And in the final analysis, or the statistical analysis, the comparator arms were going to be the standard dose with the pooled placebo and the lower dose with the pooled placebo. It was originally an overall survival endpoint trial, and then almost three-fourths of the way through became a progression-free survival trial, so the endpoint was changed, and that was because of the data that Alan has presented and published, and they felt like they should try and accelerate things to decrease the sample size. It was not a very clean trial in the way it was conducted, and the conclusions were that in both of the doses of bevacizumab, the standard dose and the lower dose, when you compare them to the pooled placebo, they were both positive for the endpoint of progression-free survival. There was not enough power to compare the two arms directly to each other, and we still don't have overall survival on the study yet as the events are still coming in. And of course, the issue is, is it possible that 7.5 would be adequate? Alan, the 1505 study is continuing with the 15 milligrams. The sentiment around the table, the think tank yesterday was unanimous with one exception, and I think this reflects what I've heard with investigators of people at this point in clinical practice are sticking with the 15-milligram dose. Is that an accurate summary, Alan? 
Yes, I think that's fine. I mean, there's more evidence weighted with the 15 milligram per kilogram. So the thought was to just utilize that one. And if more data comes out that suggests that seven and a half is the same, an amendment could always be made to adjust it, but to keep it at 15 for now. Now, Bill, this man was diagnosed a couple months ago before the 1505 trial was available. How does this sound to you as a trial to potentially offer to patients? And how do you think this man might have responded if you presented it to him? I think he would have participated in the trial and I would have offered it to him. We're participating in SWOG and Sarah Cannon research, but is it available through SWOG now too? It's going to be available through the CTSU, so you should have no problem participating in it. What's the duration of the Avastin? That was my question. That's a good question. It was one year. So it's kind of following in a lot of these other trials that are doing the same thing, even in trastuzumab. Can you talk a little bit about what happened with this man a couple months ago, Bill? You know, he needed a little time to recover from surgery. How did he do? He had a pneumonectomy. He did very well. He really did very well. How long did you see him after surgery? I saw him probably two or three weeks after surgery. He wanted to take a little bit of time, and he actually just started treatment last week. And how old is he at this point? 49. So he's 49. So this was, the head and neck was when he was 42. Wow. Okay. So what treatment options did you discuss with him, or did you just make a recommendation and that was a... Can I interrupt for one second? I'm sorry. What was... I didn't quite catch in my fury to write things down, the lymph nodes that were positive. What did you say? He had three lymph nodes. One was peribronchial, and two were described as intrapulmonary lymph nodes. That were positive? Positive. Three lymph nodes were positive. no mediastinal sampling that you're... Well, the mediastinoscopy was negative. Okay. How would you interpret his risk, baseline risk for recurrence, Alan? Hmm. Roughly, if he said to you, what's my chance if I do nothing, I'm going to have recurrent disease. So we spent a lot of time talking about this yesterday, the lack of complete mediastinal staging at the time of surgery. And we also talked about this, how this would be considered unconscionable if this was a colon cancer or a breast cancer, to not have appropriate lymph node staging, how everybody would be very upset and we would not accept from the surgeons this type of thing. But it happens much more commonly with lung cancer. It's nothing that we can do. We're not in the OR, but it's something that our surgical colleagues need to be educated about. Was it your take, Bill, that it was an inadequate surgery? I think if he was operated at one of the major cancer centers, there probably would have been more mediastinal lymph node sampling. Well, they would have at least one or two, right? Several. So, I mean, you have to have at least sampling at the various stations versus a complete dissection. We don't know if there's a difference between the two. But again, does it change the cure rate? We don't know, but... Well, it might if it affects... It might change it only because of actual... For example, this guy is a stage two because he only has N1 positive disease. But for all we know, he's got a half dozen N2 nodes that were positive that just were not sampled. So if this patient's nodes, in fact, he didn't have these three nodes, and you heard this story, what would you have done, Ed? Well, I'd say that that's when the surgeon makes it extremely easy for me. And uh, I mentioned this yesterday. If I get an early-stage patient with no lymph node dissection, then I give them adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, the interesting thing, we had Harvey Pass and Wally Curran here yesterday. Harvey was going down the line of, I would send them back and let's do another procedure. We had a stenoscopy, so that's not adequate, though. Yeah, and then Wally brought up the case of, well, maybe we should be giving radiation to these folks because of this insidious, possibly N2 disease that could be hiding. So I think the perceptions are changing in early stage and really wanting to be aggressive with these folks because they are our curable patients. Who operated on this man? Was it a thoracic surgeon? No, this was a thoracic surgeon who also does cardiovascular surgery, a very experienced surgeon, trained at the Mayo Clinic. I mean, he's a well-trained Excellent surgeon. Hmm. So what options did you present to him, or did you just make a recommendation? Well, what I talked to him about, basically the options were the three options of the study. That's what I considered. First thing I talked to him about is I wanted to see what his status of, whether he had neuropathy from the cisplatin before, and he did not. 
And the second thing was I kind of wanted to avoid vinylalbrine because I really didn't want to put a port in him. He already had a port on one side. He had radiation to neck on the other side. I wanted to avoid that, and I chose docetaxel and cisplatinum. And has he been treated yet? He just started last week. Alan, any comments? No, I think the one question we didn't touch upon was his risk of recurrence. Right, and right. So, so he's, had a, I think, a four centimeter, officially it was a four centimeter primary with multiple N1 nodes and a negative mead. So there's some thought that maybe his mediastinum is negative, at least based on that, but did require a pneumonectomy given the location, although his margins were negative. So I think for this, what would be a T2 N1 stage 2B, he's probably in somewhere uh, 40 to 50% cure rate. I would guess, and could be less, depending upon. So, obviously, the adjuvant chemotherapy, and you know, I think that that regimen's as good as any other. What relative risk reduction would you apply to that 40 or 50 percent with adjuvant chemo? You know, I always tell the patients that in terms of absolute terms, the way I discuss it with patients is that 100 patients go in a room with your lung cancer. Doing surgery alone, about 40 or 45 walk out of the room cured. With the addition of chemotherapy, I think it's more like 50 to 55, give or take, are able to walk out cured. So an extra 10 is at you know, relative risk 20 to 25% better, something like that. It's kind of hard in stage two because you've got several studies that are positive, but positive in different ways, ranging from absolute improvements of 5 to 15%. Bill, was this the kind of patient who wanted to hear these kinds of numbers, or was just doc tell me what to do? More doc tell me what to do. However, the reality of the situation that Alan just described is that even with the best chemotherapy that you can give him, he still has a very substantial chance of dying of lung cancer, and thus the potential attraction of trying something different in terms of this trial. I'm curious, Paul, I know you put a lot of people in the CO8 study. How did BEV work out in the adjuvant setting? Of course, they had to go out to a year But in terms of quality of life, side effects, hypertension, how did it sort of work out? It was pretty easy, actually. Hypertension occurred, but easy to control. We checked the urines ad infinitum, and not too many people had much protein spillage, and we had no surgical complications or bleeding or thrombotic issues. How do they feel about going out to the ear? It was not a problem. At the think tank, that question came up, but again, I don't think they have that much experience in lung cancer with doing this, and breast, you have trastuzumab. At the time, the adjuvant Herceptin women were getting weekly therapy. This was less frequent than that, and it was not a hard sell, not that we were selling, but it was readily pretty well accepted by patients. One thing, just to pick up from my public health bent, he would have been a perfect person to go to schools and high schools to talk about risks of smoking. Here's a young man, because most of the time, if you're going to deal with lung cancer, you're talking about grandparents. But here's a guy who really isn't that far away from the teenagers, college kids, and saying, look, this is what I did. It may not have been the cause, but it certainly didn't help. And when we're talking about curing lung cancer, the best way we're going to cure lung cancer in our immediate lifetime is by not smoking. And I think we forget, because if you have patients, I've started doing this in our local high school, and we do a program, the boys are right on. The girls, they still want to wear their size, too. And I mean, epidemiologically in public health education, the issue of girl smoking is a much harder issue to deal with than boy smoking and athletics and things. I would say that at least in our own high school, because we've done the survey, in girls right now, when we ask them honestly, about one in four of the girls will smoke. And in boys, it's less than one in 10. Do you know I've heard numbers two out of five girls and then, you know, less than one out of five boys. Wow, and, interesting. And women are the culprit right now. They are one of the higher incidences well as adolescents as far as smoking and largely a lot of the research you know again it's good to be hands-on but 
a lot of the early grants and sort of awarenesses went toward the middle school and the elementary schools, and they found that very largely ineffective. And so they had to wait for these kids to get a little older and mature. And actually, I think the most effective group is after or during college, because they have now established some independence and don't feel as much peer pressure, per se. And so we are going to have a lot of former smokers around, but hopefully it's just that minimal exposure in high school and college as opposed to into their early age. You know, that word culprit's kind of interesting because I think it kind of infiltrates our thinking a lot that somehow, you know, people did this to themselves and yet other people who have all kinds of issues with food or exercise get heart disease and we don't bring that same thing on them. This disease is going to kill, I realized yesterday, a million and a half people in the United States in the next 10 years. I just have one final question for Ed. For your patients who complete a head and neck cancer definitive treatment, how do you follow the chest for secondary malignancies? How often do you get x-rays or CAT scans? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because head and neck cancer has largely been surgical radiation. And many times, even five, six years ago, it was just a chest x-ray that was done prior to definitive chemoradiation or surgery. And being a medical oncologist and also seeing lung cancer, I'm extremely biased as far as looking. I like to look both in the chest and in the head and neck very closely for the first couple years. And that will be head and neck scans, lung scans. Sometimes patients want PET scans. That might be a little overkill. But I do that three to four months for the first couple years. They still see their surgeon or radonc for a scope to take a look at it directly. And then as they start getting toward three years, I space it out, go about six months at that point. And actually patients at that point are really the ones pushing me to space it out further. I think this gentleman, Bill, your patient, he'll do whatever you say because you took him seven years cured on a head and neck cancer that looked very ugly. So, you know, you're God in his hands right now. You tell him anything, he'll do it. But this is generally what we've been doing. And obviously, in head and neck, the clinical exam is very important. And that's, I think, where the surgeon, when a lot of my patients will want to continue their surveillance at home, as long as they see an ENT once a year, as long as they're getting scans, both chest CTs and head and necks. And if they're one of those patients that's a five-year out, I have one gentleman who's like that, actually closer to six years now, he gets an annual PET scan, and then he also sees his doctor once a year for a scope, and that's what he's been doing. I still would probably do six months or close to that. Bill? I'm interested to know a common problem that I have, and I suspect many of us have this, is the patients that had stage three disease that had chemo radiation. That's the most difficult patient because you get CAT scans. Many radiologists read it differently. They suspect a little bit. Then they request a PET scan. It really ends up to being a whole lot of imaging done, and it's always very difficult to tell when you have a lot of radiation changes. How important is earlier diagnosis of recurrence too, Ed? Very, very important, both in lung and both in head and neck. One quick question. This gentleman's hemoptysis. How soon after his last scan was the hemoptysis? Do you recall? He had gone a number of months. He hadn't had a scan since, like, the fall, I think. But less than a year. Less than a year. Why do you ask? Well, that's just the insidious nature of lung cancer. So here's a gentleman who's been followed annually. By all rights, he's got the, quote, state-of-the-art follow-up for a high-risk patient, and still he presented with a high-stage, relatively high-stage advanced disease. And that's why I think we all should pause before we assume that the spiral CT scans are going to be the answer as far as screening. It may, but the possibility also exists that this is such a deadly disease and spread so early and so quickly that we just may find things a little bit early, just find 
advanced disease or metastatic disease a little bit earlier. I'm curious, you talked about how you came upon the decision to use cis and docetaxel. Do you use carbotaxel as an adjuvant therapy and in what situations? And how would you have approached this man if he'd been 70? Well, I still try to do what the guidelines and recommendations are and try to use cisplatinum if I'm trying to cure someone unless they absolutely can't take it. So 70-year-old? If they can take cisplatinum, I think they can. I'll still give it a shot. 75? I still might try it if they're in good condition. 80? 80, I probably wouldn't use cisplatinum. What would you do? If I was going to treat the patient, I'd probably use carbotaxol or some combination with carboplatinum. And how do you decide what to combine it with? Well, I think I use one of the three, navalbine, docetaxel, or gemcitabine. In this case, as I mentioned, I was trying to avoid a port, which is really necessary for navalbine. And I knew this man could take the treatment. The schedule for docetaxel is a little bit easier. It doesn't need to come back in between weeks. Gemcitabine is always a problem with blood counts in the off weeks. So I thought this was a regimen he could tolerate. Ed, how would you compare your approach to what you just heard? I think that's exactly the way I would have treated this patient as well. Alan, how do you put it together in your approach in terms of the patient who's 70, 75, 80, 85 adjuvant? I think the most important is their performance status and how functioning they are. We all have, you know, again, the story, the 75-year-old who's younger than our 50-year-old who has multiple medical problems or whatnot. So I think age by far isn't the most important thing. I have no problem under the age of 80, as you'd suggested, that it go purely by performance status. And I don't, you know, bat an eye about using cisplatin and that type of group. As they start to hit 80, maybe even upper 70s, but as they start to hit 80 and go up, then there's a little bit of an issue. We can make an 82-year-old who's very young looking look 82 in a hurry if we wish. So I think in those folks, I would probably also lean toward the carboplatin because I think one of the issues is that the typical screening that we do with laboratories can be very misleading as you start to get older, particularly like creatinine, for example. You can be very much misled an 83-year-old with a creatinine of one which by all stretch in imagination is a, quote, dead normal renal function. But if you do the calculations, their renal function is probably less than 50. And so you can get in trouble with that if you fall asleep at the wheel. And I think that's those types of issues, and God knows what their liver function is. I mean, we have no way of measuring liver function, et cetera. So I think that's why I think you have to be particularly cautious as they get truly older over the age of 80. But also the 1505 study, to my understanding, does not have an age limit. There are no age limits. Again, this is the United States, and we're not so allowed to... people can use their own judgment, but there is no age limit. But there also was a presentation from the 14599 study, the Carbotaxel Plus or Minus Bev trial that you published about the issue of the older patient. Can you kind of capsulize what yeah. that showed? I mean, older patients tolerated the therapy reasonably well, but not surprisingly, not quite as well as someone who's less than 70. Broke it down, I think. So it was plus 70. or minus 70. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, again, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about is we don't pay as much attention and we don't have the means to evaluate the end organ function quite as well the older folks. And, you know, bone marrow is another one, whether they have subclinical MDS or whatever, there are issues that happen as they get older that we just can't predict. But what I saw in that, it looked like the efficacy advantage was about the same in the yeah, older Yeah, the patient. efficacy was there. It worked. The issue was just, again, you had to be a little bit more cautious. The what toxicity, specifically did you see? I, the hematologic my, toxicity was a little bit more. And this is not dissimilar from what was seen when Corey looked at the elderly in the previous study, when we looked at 1594, and the study, actually, the study even before that one with cis-etoposide versus cis-paclitaxel. Ed? Sometimes in lung cancer, especially with the attitudes surrounding it, the pessimism, the nihilism over the last several decades, you know, we get sort of 
set in our ways at certain times. I can honestly say treating head and neck cancers has totally made my usage of cisplatin much more easy to facilitate because I see them getting it concurrently with chemoradiation. I know they can get through it. I watched one of my colleagues at Anderson treat a friend of a family friend who was 93 years old, not a very robust performance status from West Virginia. They were going to put him out to pasture. He was actually a farmer. He came down, and believe me, he looked every bit of 93 years old. They diagnosed him with a sarcoma. He had this thing coming off his tricep that was 11 centimeters. And in fact, we biopsied him with a real biopsy, and it was actually a high-grade lymphoma. So I watched my colleagues give this man chaprotoxin, and he's cured, and he's doing just great. I got a Christmas card from him this past year. So, you know, when I see cases like that, I sort of lean along the lines the way Bill described it was, you know, around 80, we start getting more cautious, but it doesn't stop us, per se. Maybe we have to substitute a drug here or there, but we see this in lung cancer, all these subsets and small meta-analyses, 65 is older, 75 is older, 80 is older, and, and Alan touched on this. We don't have any ways to describe who should not be getting therapy, and now with cured patients, the whole risk benefit changes.